0: The House will come back on Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Friday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work last Tuesday and passed a bill to name a post office under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House passed a number of measures under suspension. On Thursday, the House passed H.R. 5, the Equality Act. All Democrats voted for it, and all but three Republicans who voted, voted against it. On Friday, the House took up and passed H.R. 803, the Colorado Wilderness Act. Then, late on Friday evening, the House took up H.R. 1319, the so-called American Rescue Plan Act, otherwise known as the Reconciliation Bill or the Coronavirus Relief Package. The bill passed by a vote of 219 to 212, with two Democrats, Kurt Schrader of Oregon's 5th Congressional District, and Jared Golden of Maine's second congressional district voting against it. Schrader is the only remaining House Democrat of the six who voted against an increase in the minimum wage last year. The other five were defeated for re-election. Golden, you will recall, is the Democrat who sits in the Trumpiest district of any Democrat in the House. The reconciliation bill now moves to the Senate where it will be amended. We'll talk about that in a moment. This week in the House, they'll return Monday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. There are two items on the schedule for the week, but neither is scheduled yet for a particular day. At some point during the week, the House will take up H.R. 1280, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2021, and the House will take up H.R. 1, the improperly named For the People Act of 2021. I can tell you that the Rules Committee has scheduled a meeting for Monday at 1 p.m. to report a rule for H.R. 1 and H.R. 1280. (coughs) Excuse me. Typically, the Rules Committee meets to report a rule the day before the bill in question hits the floor. I can also tell you that 102 of the 177 amendments that were filed to H.R. 1 were filed by Republicans. And I'll bet that the Democrat leadership will allow fewer than a dozen of them to be considered on the floor. Every single Democrat in the House has signed on as a co-sponsor of this legislation, and Speaker Pelosi very much wants to pass it. We'll talk about that more in a few moments. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and took up a motion to invoke cloture on the nomination of Linda Thomas-Greenfield to be representative of the United States of America to the United Nations and the representative of the United States of America in the Security Council of the United Nations. On Tuesday, the Senate voted by 78 to 20, to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Linda Greenfield Thomas to serve as the representative of the United States of America to the sessions of the General Assembly of the United Nations. Then the Senate voted to confirm Tom Vilsack to serve as Secretary of Agriculture. That vote was 92 to Senate, I'm sorry, to seven, 92 to seven. The Senate then moved to confirm Linda Greenfield Thomas to her position as representative of the United States of America to the sessions of the General Assembly of the United Nations. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Michigan, to serve as Secretary of Energy. On Thursday, by a vote of 64 to 35, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Miguel Cardona to be Secretary of Education, and then they were done for the week. This week in the Senate, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. There will be two votes stacked up. First up will be a vote to confirm Miguel Cardona to serve as Secretary of Education. Second up will be a vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Gina Marie Raimondo, the current governor of Rhode Island, to serve as Secretary of Commerce. And based on the majority leader's cloture filings last week, I would then expect a vote on the nomination of Cecilia Elena Rouse to serve as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers. And given that the House has now passed H.R. 13, the reconciliation bill, I expect the Senate will take it up at some point this week. If the Senate takes up the reconciliation bill, there would be a vote on the motion to proceed, which needs a simple majority to pass. Then up to 20 hours of debate time on the bill. Time used up while voting on amendments does not count toward the 20 hours of debate time. Then Majority Leader Schumer could lay down a complete Senate substitute amendment, in which case all amendments will be amendments to the substitute and not to the House-passed version of the bill. Debate on any amendment would be limited to two hours, equally divided, and then at the end of the 20 hours of debate, there will be another voterama, except that this time it won't last as long as the last one did a few weeks ago. Now, to confirmations, if I were a betting man, I'd be betting that by week's end, we'll be hearing about the withdrawal of Nira Tandon's nomination to serve as director of the Office of Management and Budget. Because Joe Manchin has announced he's opposed to her confirmation, and three of the four potential Republican votes for her, Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney of Utah, and Chuck Grassley of Iowa, have announced they intend to vote against her. And that leaves just one potential Republican vote for her, and I just don't believe Lisa Murkowski of Alaska would jeopardize her own reelection next year by crossing party lines to do a favor for Neera Tandon. Two Senate committees postponed their planned Wednesday meetings to consider advancing the tandem nomination. Both the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and the Budget Committee had scheduled meetings to vote on her nomination, but they pulled back and have yet to reschedule. And why reschedule? Two weeks ago, President Biden nominated Shalanda Young, who now serves as Clerk and Staff Director for the House Appropriations Committee to serve as Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and everybody on the Democrat side of the hill seems to love her. So watch her get bumped up a grade. She'll get confirmed with 80 votes in the Senate. So Tandon is toast. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans appear to be settling on Javier Becerra's nomination to serve as Secretary of Health and Human Services as their next target of opportunity in the confirmation wars. Last Monday, 11 Republican senators and 64 House Republicans sent a letter to President Biden asking him to withdraw Becerra's nomination. And on Thursday, a group of Republican senators held a press conference to highlight their opposition to Becerra. Stay tuned. Now to earmarks. Democrats are bringing them back, and the swamp is a little deeper this week than it was last week. The late Oklahoma Senator Tom Coburn said it best, earmarks are the gateway drug to spending addiction. An earmark for those who have forgotten is, according to the Congressional Research Service, any congressionally directed spending, tax benefit or tariff that would benefit an entity or a specific state, locality or congressional district, Earmarks in other words are individual spending projects tucked away into larger spending bills by definition, They are special interest spending They can be used by congressional leaders to bribe their members into doing things they otherwise wouldn't do. Like, for instance, voting for massive spending bills. When I was first working in Washington back in the 1980s, it was a big deal if Ronald Reagan signed a spending bill with 100 earmarks in it. By the time George W. Bush was president, he was signing spending bills that had thousands of earmarks in them. In fiscal year 2005, the Republican-controlled Congress included nearly 14,000 earmarks in its spending bills. Remember former Congressman Duke Cunningham, the former naval aviator who many believe was the model for Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun? He went to jail because he took bribes from lobbyists for inserting earmarks into spending bills. Remember lobbyist Jack Abramoff? He went to jail for working with members of Congress to insert earmarks into spending bills. Republicans banned the practice of earmarking funds when they took over the House in 2011. By 2017, some of them were rethinking their positions. And President Trump, who was not a veteran of the spending wars of previous decades, had no idea how helpful to good governance was the ban on earmarks and thought it might be a good idea to overturn the ban on earmarks and suggested they consider it. Paul Ryan, who had recently stepped in as Speaker to replace John Boehner, who, by the way, never once requested an earmark, shut down talk of restoring earmarks, and nothing more happened on that front while Republicans controlled the majority in the House. But now Democrats control both the House and the Senate, and they have the thinnest majorities in anyone's memory. Earmarks were the tools used by congressional leaders as the sweets to dangle, and they want them back. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer recently promised his members that earmarks would come back on a bipartisan basis. That is, he assured his Democrat colleagues that spending-hungry Republicans would join them in welcoming back earmarks. On Friday of last week, House Appropriations Committee Chairwoman Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut announced a proposal to restore what she called community project funding, otherwise known as earmarks. Under her proposal, earmarks would be capped at 1% of discretionary spending. That would be $140 million. I'm sorry. Uh, That would be, we'll have to figure that out. Um, earmarks would be capped at 1% of discretionary spending and lawmakers would have to openly declare their requests for earmarked funding. No individual member could submit more than 10 project requests. All such requests would be posted online. No member or his family could have a financial stake in the project and no for-profit entities could be a recipient of an earmark. So here's the deal even though they're in the minority congressional republicans have the power to determine whether or not earmarks come back how because earmarks get inserted into spending bills and spending bills whether we're talking about the 12 individual appropriations bills that congress is supposed to use on an annual basis to fund the government or the one or two big omnibus spending bills of the type we've seen for the last several years they have to go through the senate with 60 votes That means there has to be GOP buy-in in the Senate for any spending bill to pass. And that means that Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has the power, if he can unite his conference, to tell Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and anyone else who's listening that earmarks are not coming back, because no Republican will vote for any spending bill that has earmarks in it, and then be willing to engage in a shutdown showdown. Let the Democrats make the case to the public that they're shutting down the government because the Republicans will not allow the return of pork barrel spending. It's just that simple. If ever there were an issue to begin to once again show a difference between the two parties, this could be it. In the House, the members of the House Freedom Caucus are taking a hardline stand against the return of earmarks. The larger Republican Study Committee, chaired by Jim Banks of Indiana, plans to meet next week to consider the issue. Stay tuned. At some point this week, we expect to see Speaker Pelosi move her most important bill of all to the floor. It's designated H.R. 1, and she calls it the For the People Act of 2021. It ought to be called the For the Politicians Act, or the If we can enact this, Democrats will never lose another race act. This bill would vastly restrict our rights in the arena of public policy debates and elections. This bill is an 800-page monstrosity, a collection of more than a dozen pieces of individual legislation, each of which would, on its own, make life more difficult for citizens trying to use their First Amendment rights to affect public policy or influence the outcome of elections. Rolled as they are into an omnibus bill, one could be forgiven for wondering if the real purpose of the legislation isn't to achieve and then ensure continued political dominance of our public policy sphere by liberal political actors. H.R. 1 would overturn more than two centuries worth of American public policy and political tradition and experience by centralizing election administration at the federal level. Rather than allow the states to administer their elections with procedures that take into account each state's unique political topography, the new legislation would mandate administration from the federal government with a one-size-fits-all approach. Imagine Obamacare for elections and public policy arguments, and you've got the idea. Here's just a partial list of the horribles contained in this legislation. It creates welfare for politicians and forces taxpayers to fund candidates and ideas they oppose. Under H.R. 1, government money would flow to candidates for federal office on a 6 to 1 ratio for contributions up to $200. That is, for every $200 contribution raised, the candidate would be entitled to a check for $1,200 paid for by government funds. That means many taxpayers would be required to fund candidates who support policies they oppose. Thomas Jefferson said that to compel a man to furnish funds for the propagation of ideas he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. He was right. It's an incumbent protection scheme. Under HR1, some candidates would be lured into engaging a Trojan horse. The legislation offers candidates for federal office a six-to-one match on contributions up to $200. So a $200 contribution magically becomes a $1,400 contribution. That must look very attractive to the kind of candidates who believe they'll have a hard time raising money. What they may not realize, though, is that in order to receive the matching funds, the candidate also must agree to limit his fundraising threshold to $1,000 per individual rather than the current individual contribution limit of $5,600 per cycle. So some candidates will find it much easier to raise money, but because they've agreed to limit their ability to raise money, they won't be able to raise enough to win. The bill destroys state level voter verification efforts. Under H.R. 1, individuals would no longer be required to provide a government-issued photographic voter identification card to prove who they are before they register to vote. And voters arriving at a polling place would no longer be required to show ID either. Instead, They could simply sign a piece of paper saying they are who they say they are. This provision would gut state-level efforts to enhance election integrity. The bill further opens the door to vote fraud by mandating same-day registration. Under H.R. 1, states would be required to implement same-day registration up to and including election day registration. Without any time to verify voter information, election officials would be hard-pressed to prevent voter fraud. The bill massively expands voter rolls by registering voters automatically, including non-citizens. Under H.R. 1, states would be mandated to automatically register to vote every person, regardless of citizenship status, who enrolls in certain government programs. Visiting the Department of Motor Vehicles or signing up to receive welfare benefits could lead to automatic registration. Because certain government programs are not limited to citizens, this could lead to ineligible persons, such as illegal immigrants, automatically being added to voter rolls. The bill prohibits states from rejecting any voter application. Under H.R. 1, it would become a criminal act to refuse to accept a voter registration application even if that application does not meet the necessary requirements. The bill prohibits challenges to voter eligibility. Under H.R. 1, it would also become a criminal act to challenge any registrant's eligibility to register or to vote. The bill federalizes and greatly expands the use of absentee mail-in ballots. Under H.R. 1, all states would be required to allow registered voters to cast an absentee ballot by mail without providing a reason for doing so. And all states would be required to accept as valid and count mailed in ballots that are postmarked before or on election day, so long as they are received up to 10 days after the election. The bill provides for 16 and 17-year-olds to vote. Under H.R. 1, 16 and 17-year-olds would be allowed to register, even though they are not legally allowed to vote until they reach the age of 18. Under the new law, though, because of the new law makes it a crime to challenge any registrant's ability to register or to vote, those 16- and 17-year-olds will be able to vote because we won't any longer be requiring proof of identification on election day, and even if a 16- or 17-year-old were challenged, all he would have to do is sign a statement declaring that he's eligible to vote. The bill turns the Federal Election Commission from a bipartisan election watchdog into a partisan attack machine. Under current law, the Federal Election Commission is a bipartisan election law enforcement authority composed of three Republicans and three Democrats, and a requirement of four votes to engage in any enforcement action. As a consequence, only enforcement actions that earn bipartisan support can be undertaken. Under H.R. 1, the FEC would be composed of two Republicans and two Democrats, with a fifth member, the chairman, to be selected by the president. This would turn the FEC into a partisan attack dog controlled by the party that controls the White House. Finally, the bill removes accountability during redistricting. Currently, most states empower their legislatures to redraw district lines for federal and state legislative seats after every decennial census. Because those state lawmakers are elected by their constituents, they can be held accountable at the ballot box. Under HR 1, the power to redraw district lines would be turned over to unelected, unaccountable redistricting commissions. As mentioned above, every single Democrat in the House has co-sponsored this legislation. This is a very, very high priority for Speaker Pelosi. I expect that it will pass the House. Every single Democrat in the House is a co-sponsor, but it will run into trouble in the Senate because there will not be 10 Republican votes to break a filibuster to bring this bill to the floor. Now to redistricting. The Census Bureau revealed a week and a half ago that it won't be transmitting redistricting data to the states until September 30th of this year, much later than it regularly does. In some cases, that data is going to show up just five weeks before state elections. The original deadline for delivery of this data was April 1. The vast majority of states have not released a projected timeline for the 2020 redistricting. The state of New Jersey put a constitutional amendment on the ballot in the November 2020 general election. Garden State voters approved public question three, a constitutional amendment postponing legislative redistricting until after the November 2021 general election if the Census Bureau failed to deliver redistricting data by February 15, 2021. Since that date has come and gone without delivery of the redistricting data, New Jersey's current legislative district map will remain in place for the 2021 elections, and will remain in force until 2023. Now to the Biden coronavirus relief package. In the wee hours of Saturday morning, House Democrats jammed through their reconciliation bill. So now it goes to the Senate, but in the Senate, it's going to be amended because the Senate parliamentarian announced on Thursday that the minimum wage increase provision would not be allowed under the Byrd rule and must be dropped from the package. Progressives in the House and Senate were angered to hear this and suggested alternatives. One proposal was that Vice President Kamala Harris, in her role as president of the Senate, should simply ignore and or overrule the parliamentarian. The last time that happened was in 1975, when Vice President Nelson Rockefeller chose to ignore the parliamentarian's ruling on an issue. But the Biden White House said no, the vice president would not be ignoring the rules of the Senate. So, Senate Democrats are now considering a back doorway of getting to a $15 minimum wage. They're considering changing the tax code to use it to penalize any large company that does not pay its lowest paid employees at least $15 per hour. Here's where it gets tricky. The, the parliamentarians' decision to kick out the minimum wage increase actually might make it easier for the Democrats to get to 50 votes in the Senate because it means West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin and Arizona Democrat Kirsten Sinema, both of whom had previously announced their opposition to hiking the minimum wage to $15 per hour, no longer have a reason to vote against the bill. So if the Senate Democrats find another way of maneuvering to a $15 per hour minimum wage, it's an open question as to whether or not Manchin or Cinema or both of them decide to vote the bill down. Of course, the White House is promising that they'll work later for a standalone bill to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour, but that bill will go nowhere in the Senate because it won't be able to win 10 GOP votes to get to the 60-vote threshold, even if Cinema and Manchin decided to vote for it. That's why they wanted to include the minimum wage hike in the reconciliation bill in the first place, because the reconciliation bill doesn't need to win 60 votes to get to the floor. It only needs 50 votes to pass. Democrats are stymied on this one. My bet is that no provision raising the minimum wage is included in the final version of the sen- that the Senate will vote on, And then we'll have to see if it wins 50 votes and then goes back to the House. Expect the amended bill to hit the floor of the Senate toward the end of this week. Finally, President Trump at CPAC. He spoke this afternoon. I'm sure you'll find lots of coverage of his speech, so I'm just going to focus on a few key takeaways. First, he settled the question, hopefully once and for all, regarding whether or not he would leave the GOP to form a third party. His answer to that question is a definitive no. Quote, we have the republican party he said it's going to unite and be stronger than ever before i am not starting a new party End quote. then he laid into president biden quote, joe biden has had the most disastrous first month of any president in history in just one short month we've gone from america first to america last End quote. trump began by attacking biden over biden's failures on the border security front and then continued with reopening the economy and reopening schools, success in developing vaccines, ending the endless wars, sanctions on Iran, WHO membership fees, the Paris Agreement, the Keystone XL pipeline and energy independence, the need to protect women's sports, the history and heritage of America, protecting innocent life, Judeo-Christian values, America's founding principles, cancel culture, the Constitution, supporting and not defunding police, standing strong against China, free, fair, and secure elections, voting on one day. Big tech silencing conservative voices, the imperative to defeat HR1, and electing conservatives to take back the House and Senate in 2022, and then the White House in 2024 with a big tease about his potential return. But here's what the mainstream media takeaway is going to be. It's going to be that Trump announced at CPAC that Republican primary voters should defeat the 10 House Republicans and seven Senate Republicans who either voted to impeach him or voted to convict him. Get rid of them all he said. Not all of them are running for re-election, of course, so he won't do anything to those, presumably, but the ones who are planning to run for re-election are going to face his wrath in the form of political attacks that hurt them in a Republican primary and help whatever primary challengers may appear to campaign against them. And that is our Washington Report for this week.